CD4 Oh, no. Vimes put his hands over his eyes. Not the bloody alchemists. Oh, no, not that bloody gang of mad firework merchants. I can take the assassins, but not those idiots. No, please. What time is it? Garrett glanced at the hourglass on his belt. About half past eleven, Captain. Then I'm off to bed. Those clowns can wait until tomorrow. You could make me a happy man by telling me that this paper belonged to Hammerhock. Doubt it, sir. Me too. Come on, let's go out through the back door. Carrot squeezed through. Mind your head, sir. Vimes, almost on his knees, stopped and stared at the doorframe. Well, Corporal, he said eventually, we know it wasn't a troll that did it, don't we? Two reasons. One, a troll couldn't get through this door. It's dwarf-sized. What's the other reason, sir? Vimes carefully pulled something off a splinter on the low door lintel. The other reason, Carrot, is that trolls don't have hair. The couple of strands that had been caught in the grain of the beam were red and long. Someone had left them there inadvertently, someone tall, taller than a dwarf, anyway. Vimes peered at them. They looked more like threads than hair, fine red threads. Oh well, a clue was a clue. He carefully folded them up in a scrap of paper borrowed from Carrot's notebook and handed them to the corporal. Here, keep this safe. They crawled out into the night. There was a narrow plank walkway attached to the walls, and beyond that was the river. Vimes straightened up carefully. I don't like this, Carrot, he said. There's something bad underneath all this. Carrot looked down. I mean, there are hidden things happening, said Vimes patiently. Yes, sir. Let's go back to the yard. They proceeded to the brass bridge quite slowly, because Carrot cheerfully acknowledged everyone they met. Hard-edged ruffians whose normal response to a remark from a watchman would be genteelly paraphrased by a string of symbols generally found on the top row of a typewriter's keyboard, would actually smile awkwardly and mumble something harmless in response to his hearty, "'Good evening, Masher. Mind how you go?' Vimes stopped halfway across the bridge to light his cigar, striking a match on one of the ornamental hippos. Then he looked down into the turbid waters. Carrot? Yes, Captain? Do you think there's such a thing as the criminal mind? Carrot almost audibly tried to work this out. What, you mean like Mr Cut-Me-Own-Throat-Dibbler, sir? He's not a criminal. You have eaten one of his pies, sir. I mean, yes, but he's just geographically divergent in the financial hemisphere. Sir? I mean, he just disagrees with other people about the position of things, like money. He thinks it should all be in his pocket. No, I meant... Vimes closed his eyes and thought about cigar smoke and flowing drink and laconic voices. There were people who'd steal money from people, fair enough. That was just theft. But there were people who, with one easy word, would steal the humanity from people. That was something else. The point was, well, he didn't like dwarfs and trolls but he didn't like anyone very much. The point was that he moved in their company every day and he had a right to dislike them. The point was that no fat idiot had the right to say things like that. He stared at the water. One of the piles of the bridge was right below him. The ark sucked and gurgled around it. Debris, bulks of timber, branches, rubbish had piled up in a sort of sordid floating island. There was even fungus growing on it. What he could do with right now was a bottle of bear huggers. The world swam into focus when you looked at it through the bottom of a bottle. 
Something else swam into focus. Doctrine of signatures, thought Vimes. That's what the herbalists call it. It's like the gods put a use-me label on plants. If a plant looks like a part of the body, it's good for ailments peculiar to that part. There's teeth-wart for teeth, spleen-wart for spleens, eye-bright for eyes. There's even a toadstool called phallus impudicus. And I don't know what that's for, but Nobby is a big man for mushroom omelettes. Now, either that fungus down there is exactly the medicine for hands, or... Vimes sighed. Carrot, can you go and get a boat hook, please? Carrot followed his gaze. Just to the left of that log, Carrot. Oh, no, I'm afraid so. Haul it out, find out who he was, make out a report for Sergeant Colon. The corpse was a clown. Once Carrot had climbed down the pile and moved the debris aside, he floated face up, a big sad grin painted on his face. He's dead. Catching, isn't it? Vimes looked at the grinning corpse. Don't investigate. Keep out of it. Leave it to the assassins and bloody quirk. These are your orders. Corporal Carrot. Sir? These are your orders. Well, damn that. What did Veterinari think he was? Some kind of clockwork soldier? We're going to find out what's been going on here. Yes, sir. Whatever else happens, we're going to find out. The River Ankh is probably the only river in the universe on which the investigators can chalk the outline of the corpse. Dear Sergeant Colon, I hope you are well. The weather is fine. This is a corpse, who we fished out of the river last night, but we don't know who he is except he is a member of the Fool's Guild called Beano. He has been seriously hit on the back of the head and has been stuck under the bridge for some time. He is not a pretty sight. Captain Vimes says to find out things. He says he thinks it is mixed up with the murder of Mr. Hammerhock. He says talk to the fools. He says do it. Also, please find attached piece of paper. Captain Vimes says try it out on the alchemists. Sergeant Colon stopped reading for a while to curse all alchemists. Because it is puzzling evidence. Hoping this finds you in good health. Yours faithfully, Carrot Iron Founderson, CPL. The sergeant scratched his head. What the hell did that all mean? Just after breakfast, a couple of senior jesters from the Fool's Guild had come in to pick up the corpse. Corpses in the river. Well, there was nothing very unusual about that. But it wasn't the way clowns died, usually. After all, what did a clown have that was worth stealing? What sort of a danger was a clown? As for the alchemists, he was blowed if he was... Of course, he didn't have to... He looked up at the recruits. They had to be good for something. Cuddy and detritus don't salute. I've got a little job for you. Just take this piece of paper to the Alchemist's Guild, all right? And ask one of the loonies to tell you what he makes of it. Where's the Alchemist's Guild, Sergeant? said Cuddy. In the street of Alchemists, of course, said Colon, at the moment. But I should run if I were you. The Alchemist's Guild is opposite the Gambler's Guild, usually. Sometimes it's above it or below it, or falling in bits around it. The Gamblers are occasionally asked why they continue to maintain an establishment opposite a guild which accidentally blows up its guild hall every few months. And they say, did you read the sign on the door when you came in? 
The troll and the dwarf walked towards it, occasionally barging into each other by deliberate accident. Anyway, you so clever, he gave paper to me? Huh, can you read it then, can you? No, I tell you to read it. They're called delegation. Heh, <laughs> can't read, can't count, stupid troll. Not stupid. Heh, <laughs> yes, everyone knows trolls can't even count up to four. In fact, trolls traditionally count like this. One, two, three, many. And people assume this means that they can have no grasp of higher numbers. They don't realise that many can be a number, as in one, two, three, many, many, one, many, two, many, three, many, 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 one, many, many, two, many, many, three, many, 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 one, many, 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 two, many, 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 three, lots. Eater of rats. How many fingers am I holding up? You tell me, Mr. Clever Rocks in the head. Many, detritus hazarded. Ha, 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 no five. You'll be in big trouble on payday. Sergeant Colon will say, stupid troll, he won't know how many dollars I give him. He, 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 how come you read the notice about joining the watch anyway? Got someone to read it to you? How come you read notice? Get someone to hold you up? They walked into the door of the alchemist's guild. I knock. My job. I'll knock. When Mr. Sendivoge, the guild secretary, opened the door, it was to find a dwarf hanging on the knocker and being swung up and down by a troll. He adjusted his crash helmet. Yes, he said. Cuddy let go. Detritus's massive brows knitted. Er, uh, you loony bastard. What you make of this, he said. Sendivoge stared from detritus to the paper. Cuddy was struggling to get around the troll, who was almost completely blocking the doorway. What you gonna call him that for? Sergeant Colon, he said. I could make a hat out of it, said Sendivoge, or a string of dollies, if I could get some scissors. What my colleague means, sir, is can you help us in our inquiries re the writing on this alleged piece of paper here? said Cuddy. That bloody hurt! Sandy Vosges peered at him. Are you watchmen? he said. I am Lance Constable Cuddy, and this, said Cuddy, gesturing upwards, is Lance trying to be Constable Detritus. Don't salute... Oh! There was a thump, and Detritus slumped sideways. "'Suicide squad, is he?' said the alchemist. "'He'll come round in a minute,' said Cuddy. "'It's the saluting. It's too much for him. You know trolls.' Sandy Vosges shrugged and stared at the writing. "'Looks familiar,' he said. "'Seen it somewhere before. Here. You're a dwarf, aren't you?' "'It's the nose, isn't it?' said Cuddy. It always gives me away. Well, I'm sure we always try to be of help to the community, said Sendivoge. Do come in. Cuddy's steel-tipped boots kicked Detritus back into semi-sensibility, and he lumbered after them. Why the, um, why the a crash helmet, mister? 
said Cuddy, as they walked along the corridor. All around them was the sound of hammering. The guild was usually being rebuilt. Sandy Vosges rolled his eyes. Balls, he said. Billiard balls, in fact. I knew a man who played like that, said Cuddy. Oh, no, Mr. Silverfish is a good shot. That tends rather to be the problem, in fact. Cuddy looked at the crash helmet again. It's the ivory, you see. Ah, said Cuddy, not seeing. Elephants? Ivory without elephants. Transmuted ivory. Sound commercial venture. I thought you were working on gold. Ah, yes, of course. You people know all about gold, said Sendivoge. Oh, yes, said Cuddy, reflecting on the phrase, you people. The gold, said Sandy Voge, thoughtfully, is turning out to be a bit uh, uh, tricky. How long have you been trying? Three hundred years. That's a long time. But we've been working on the ivory for only a week, and it's going very well, said the alchemist quickly, except for some side effects which we'll doubtless soon be able to sort out. He pushed open a door. It was a large room, heavily outfitted with the usual badly ventilated furnaces, rows of bubbling crucibles, and one stuffed alligator. Things floated in jars. The air smelled of a limited life expectancy. A lot of equipment had been moved away, however, to make room for a billiard table. Half a dozen alchemists were standing around it in the manner of men poised to run. "'It's the third this week,' said Sandy Voge gloomily. He nodded to a figure bent over a queue. Uh, Mr. Silverfish, he began. Quiet, game on, said the head alchemist, squinting at the white ball. Sandy Voge glanced at the score rail. Twenty-one points, he said. My word, perhaps we're adding just the right amount of camphor to the nitrocellulose after all. There was a click. The cue ball rolled away, bounced off the cushion, and then accelerated. White smoke poured off it as it bore down on an innocent cluster of red balls. Silverfish shook his head. Unstable, he said. Everybody down. Everyone in the room ducked, except for the two watchmen, one of whom was in a sense pre-ducked, and the other of whom was several minutes behind events. The black ball took off on a column of flame, whiffled past Detritus's face, trailing black smoke, and then shattered a window. The green ball was staying in one spot, but spinning furiously. The other balls cannoned back and forth, occasionally bursting into flame, or caroming off the walls. A red one hit detritus between the eyes, curved back onto the table, holed itself in the middle pocket, and then blew up. There was silence, except for the occasional bout of coughing. Silverfish appeared through the oily smoke, and with a shaking hand moved the score point one notch with the burning end of his cue. One, he said. Oh, well, back to the crucible. Someone order another billiard table. Excuse me, said Cuddy, prodding him in the knee. Who's there? Down here. Silverfish looks down. Oh, are, are you a dwarf? Cuddy gave him a blank stare. Are you a giant? He said. Me? Oh, of course not. Ah, then I must be a dwarf, yes. And that's a troll behind me, said Cuddy. Detritus pulled himself into something resembling attention. We've come to see if you can tell us what's on this paper, said Cuddy. Yeah, said Detritus. Silverfish looked at it. Oh, yes, he said. Some of old Leonard's stuff. Well... Leonard, said Cuddy. He glared at Detritus. 
Write this down, he snapped. Leonard of Quirm, said the alchemist. Cuddy still looked lost. Never heard of him, said Silverfish. Can't say I have, sir. I thought everyone knew about Leonard de Quirm. Quite balmy, but a genius, too. Was he an alchemist? Write this down, write this down. Detritus looked around blearily for a burnt bit of wood and a handy wall. Leonard, no, he didn't belong to a guild. Or he belonged to all the guilds, I suppose. He got around quite a bit. He, he, he tinkered, if you know what I mean. No, sir. He painted a bit and messed about with mechanisms. Any old thing. Or a hammer and chisel, even, thought Detritus. This, said Silverfish, is a formula for... Well, I might as well tell you, it's hardly any big secret. It's a formula for what we call number one powder. Sulphur, saltpetre and charcoal. You use it in fireworks. Any fool could make it up, but it looks odd because it's written back to front. This sounds important, hissed Cuddy to the troll. Oh, no, he always used to write back to front, said Silverfish. He was odd like that, but very clever all the same. Haven't you seen his portrait of the Mona Og? I don't think so. Silverfish handed the parchment to Detritus, who squinted at it as if he knew what it meant. Maybe he could write on this, he thought. The teeth followed you around the room. Amazing. In fact, some people said they followed them out of the room and all the way down the street. I think we should talk to Mr. De Quirm, said Cuddy. Oh, you could do that. You could do that. Yes, certainly, said Silverfish. But he might not be in a position to listen. He disappeared a couple of years ago. Then, when I find something to write with, thought Detritus, I have to find someone to teach me how to write. Disappeared? How? said Cuddy. We think, said Silverfish, leaning closer, that he found a way of making himself invisible. Really? Because, said Silverfish, nodding conspiratorially, no one's seen him. Ah, said Cuddy. Ah, this is just off the top of my head, you understand, but I suppose he couldn't just have gone somewhere where you couldn't see him. Uh, that wouldn't be like old Leonard. He wouldn't disappear but he might vanish. Oh, he was a bit unhinged, if you know what I mean. Head too full of brains. <laughs> I remember he had this idea once of getting lightning out of lemons. Hey, Sendivoge, you remember Leonard and his lightning lemons? Sendivoge made little circular motions alongside his head with one finger. Oh, yes. If you stick copper and zinc rods in the lemon, hey, presto, you get tame lightning. <laughs> Man was an idiot. Oh, "'Not an idiot,' said Silverfish, picking up a billiard ball that had miraculously escaped the detonations. "'Just so sharp he kept cutting himself, as my granny used to say. "'Lightning lemons. <laughs> Where's the sense in that? "'It was as bad as his voices in the sky machine. "'I told him, Leonard, I said, "'What are wizards for, hmm? "'There's perfectly normal magic available for that kind of thing. "'Lightning lemons. "'It'll be men with wings next. "'And you know what he said?' You know what he said? He said, Funny you should say that. Poor old chap. Even Cuddy joined in the laughter. And did you try it? He said afterwards. Try what? said Silverfish. <laughs> said Detritus, toiling behind the others. Putting the metal rods in the lemons. Don't be a damn fool. 
What's this letter mean? said Detritus, pointing at the paper. They looked. Oh, that's not a symbol, said Silverfish. That's just old Leonard's way. He was always doodling in margins. Doodle, 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 I told him. You should call yourself Mr. Doodle. I thought it was some alchemy thing, said Cuddy. It looks a bit like a crossbow without the bow. And this word, enoget. What does that mean? Search me. Sounds barbarian to me. Anyway, if that's all, officer, we've got some serious research to do, said Silverfish, tossing the fake ivory ball up in the air and catching it again. We're not all daydreamers like poor old Leonard. Enoget, said Cuddy, turning the paper round and round. T. H-E-G-O-N-N-E. Silverfish missed the ball. Cuddy got behind detritus just in time. I've done this before, said Sergeant Colon, as he and Nobby approached the Fool's Guild. Keep up against the wall when it bangs the knocker, all right? It was shaped like a pair of artificial breasts, the sort that are highly amusing to rugby players and anyone whose sense of humour has been surgically removed. Colon gave it a quick rap, and then flung himself to safety. There was a whoop, a few honks on a horn, a little tune that someone somewhere must have thought was very jolly, a small hatch slid aside above the knocker, and a custard pie emerged slowly on the end of a wooden arm. Then the arm snapped and the pie collapsed in a little heap by Colon's foot. "'It's sad, isn't it?' said Nobby. The door opened awkwardly, but only by a few inches, and a small clown stared up at him. "'I say,' I say, I say, it said. Why did the fat man knock at the door? I don't know, said Colon automatically. Why did the fat man knock at the door? They stared at each other, tangled in the punchline. That's what I asked you, said the clown reproachfully. He had a depressed, hopeless voice. Sergeant Colon struck out towards sanity. "'Sergeant Colon, night watch,' he said. "'And this here is Corporal Nobbs. "'We've come to talk to someone about the man who... "'who was found in the river, okay?' "'Oh, yes. Poor Brother Vino. "'I suppose you'd better come in, then,' said the clown. "'Nobby was about to push at the door "'when Colon stopped him and pointed wordlessly upwards. "'There seems to be a bucket of whitewash over the door,' he said. "'Is there?' said the clown. He was very small, with huge boots that made him look like a capital L. His face was plastered with flesh-coloured makeup, on which a big frown had been painted. His hair had been made from a couple of old mops painted red. He wasn't fat, but a sort of hoop in his trousers was supposed to make him look amusingly overweight. A pair of rubber braces, so that his trousers bounced up and down when he walked, were a further component in the overall picture of a complete and utter twerp. "'Yes,' said Colon, "'there is.' Sure. Positive. Sorry about that, said the clown. It's stupid, I know, but kind of traditional. Wait a moment. There were sounds of a stepladder being lugged into position and various clankings and swear words. All right, come on in. The clown led the way through the gatehouse. There was no sound but the flop-flop of his boots on the cobbles. Then an idea seemed to occur to him. It's a long shot, I know, but I suppose neither of you gentlemen like a sniff of my buttonhole. No. No. No, I suppose not. <sighs> the clown sighed. 
It's not easy, you know, clowning. I mean, I'm on gate duty because I'm on probation. You are? I keep on forgetting. Is it crying on the outside and laughing on the inside? I always get it mixed up. About this Beano, Colon began. We're just holding his funeral, said the little clown. That's why my trousers are at half-mast. They stepped out into the sunlight again. The inner courtyard was lined with clowns and fools. Bells tinkled in the breeze. Sunlight glinted off red noses and the occasional nervous jet of water from a fake buttonhole. The clown ushered the guards into a line of fools. I'm sure Dr. Whiteface will talk to you as soon as we've finished, he said. My name's Boffo, by the way. He held out his hand, hopefully. Don't shake it, Colon warned. Boffo looked crestfallen. A band struck up and a procession of guild members emerged from the chapel. A clown walked a little way ahead, carrying a small urn. This is very moving, said Boffo. On a dais on the opposite side of the quadrangle was a fat clown in baggy trousers, huge braces, a bow tie that was spinning gently in the breeze, and a top hat. His face had been painted into a picture of misery. He held a bladder on a stick. The clown with the urn reached the dais, climbed the steps, and waited. The band fell silent. The clown in the top hat hit the urn carrier about the head with the bladder. Once, twice, three times. The urn bearer stepped forward, waggled his wig, took the urn in one hand and the clown's belt in the other, and with great solemnity poured the ashes of the late brother Beano into the other clown's trousers. A sigh went up from the audience. The band struck up the clown anthem, The March of the Idiots, and the end of the trombone flew off and hit a clown on the back of the head. He turned and swung a punch at the clown behind him, who ducked, causing a third clown to be knocked through the bass drum. Colon and Nobby looked at one another and shook their heads. Boffo produced a large red and white handkerchief and blew his nose with a humorous honking sound. Classic, he said, is what he would have wanted. Have you any idea what happened? said Colon. Oh, yes. Brother Grinaldi did the old heel and toe trick and tipped the urn down. I mean, why did Beano die? Um, we think it was an accident, said Boffo. An accident, said Colon flatly. Yes, that's what Dr. Whiteface thinks. Boffo glanced upwards briefly. They followed his gaze. The rooftops of the Assassin's Guild adjoined the Fool's Guild. It didn't do to upset neighbours like that, especially when the only weapon you had was a custard pie edged with short-crust pastry. That's what Dr. Whiteface thinks, said Boffo again, looking at his enormous shoes. Sergeant Colon liked a quiet life, and the city could spare a clown or two. In his opinion, the loss of the whole boiling could only make the world a slightly happier place. And yet, and yet honestly, he didn't know what had got into the watch lately. It was carrot, that's what it was. Even old Vimes had picked it up. We don't let things lie any more. Maybe he was cleaning a club sort of thing, and it accidentally went off, said Nobby. He'd caught it too. No one had want to kill young Beano, said the clown in a quiet voice. He was a friendly soul. Friends everywhere. Almost everywhere, said Colon. The funeral was over. The jesters, jokers and clowns were going about their business getting stuck in doorways on the way. There was much pushing and shoving and honking of noses and falling of prats. It was a scene to make a happy man slit his wrists on a fine spring morning. 
"'All I know is,' said Boffo in a low voice, "'that when I saw him yesterday he was looking very odd. "'I called out to him when he was going through the gates, and—' "'How do you mean, odd?' said Colon. "'I'm detectoring, he thought, with a faint touch of pride. "'People are helping me with my inquiries.' "'Dunno, odd, not quite himself.' "'This was yesterday?' "'Oh, yes, in the morning. I know, because the gate wrote—' "'Yesterday morning. That's what I said, mister. Mind you, we were all a bit nervous after the bang.' "'Brother Boffo!' "'Oh, no,' mumbled the clown. A figure was striding towards them. A terrible figure. No clowns were funny. That was the whole purpose of the clown.' People laughed at clowns, but only out of nervousness. The point of clowns was that after watching them, anything else that happened seemed enjoyable. It was nice to know there was someone worse off than you. Someone had to be the butt of the world. But even clowns are frightened of something. And that is the white-faced clown. The one who never gets in the way of the custard. The one in the shiny white clothes and the deadpan white makeup. The one with the little pointy hat and the thin mouth and the delicate black eyebrows. Dr. Whiteface. "'Who are these gentlemen?' he demanded. "'Er,' uh, Boffo began. "'Night watch, sir,' said Colon, saluting. "'And why are you here?' "'Investigating our inquiries as to the fatal demise of the clown Beano, sir,' said Colon. "'I rather think this is guild business, sergeant, don't you?' "'Well, sir, he was found in the rip. "'I'm sure it is something we don't need to bother the watch with,' said Dr. Whiteface. "'Colon hesitated.' He'd prefer to face Dr. Cruces than this apparition. At least the assassins were supposed to be unpleasant. Clowns were only one step away from mime artists, too. No, sir, he said. It was obviously an accident, right? Quite so. Brother Boffo will show you to the door, said the head clown, and then, he added, he will report to my office. Does he understand? Yes, Dr. Whiteface, mumbled Boffo. What'll he do to you? said Nobby as they headed for the gate. Hat full of whitewash, probably, said Boffo. Pie in a face if I'm lucky. He opened the wicket gate. A lot of us ain't happy about this, he whispered. I don't see why those buggers should get away with it. We ought to go round to the assassins and have it out with them. Why the assassins, said Colon. Why would they kill a clown? Boffo looked guilty. I never said a thing. Colon glared at him. There is definitely something odd happening, Mr. Boffo. Boffo looked around as if expecting a vengeful custard pie at any moment. You find his nose, he hissed. You just find his nose. His poor nose. The gate slammed shut. Sergeant Colon turned to Nobby. Did Exhibit A have a nose, Nobby? Yes, Fred. Then what was that about? Search me. Nobby scratched a promising boil. Perhaps he meant a false nose, you know, those red ones on elastic. The ones, said Nobby, grimacing, they think are funny. He didn't have one. Colon rapped on the door, taking care to stand out of the way of any jolly, amusing booby traps. The hatch slid open. Yes, hissed Boffo. Did you mean his false nose, said Colon. His real one. Now bugger off. The hatch snapped back. Mental, said Nobby firmly. Beano had a real nose. Did it look wrong to you? said Colon. No, it had a couple of holes in it. 
Well, I don't know about noses, said Colon, but either Brother Boffer was dead wrong or there's something fishy going on. Like what? Well, Nobby, you're what I might call a career soldier, right? That's right, Freight. How many dishonourable discharges have you had? Lots, said Nobby proudly, but I always puts a poultice on them. You've been on a lot of battlefields, haven't you? Dozens, Sergeant Colon nodded. So you've seen a lot of corpses, right, when you've been ministering to the fallen? Corporal Nobbs nodded. They both knew that ministering meant harvesting any personal jewellery and stealing their boots. In many a faraway battlefield, the last thing many a mortally wounded foreman ever saw was Corporal Nobbs heading towards him with a sack, a knife, and a calculating expression. Shame to let good stuff go to waste, said Nobby. So you've noticed how dead bodies get to... Deader, said Sergeant Colon. Deader than dead? You know, more corpsey, said Sergeant Colon, forensic expert. Going stiff and, and, and purple and such like? Right. And then sort of manky and runny? Yes, yes, all right. It makes it easier to get the rings off, mind you. The point is, Nobby, that you can tell how old a corpse is. That clown for E.G., you saw him, same as me. How long would you say? About five foot nine, I'd say. His boots didn't fit, I know that. Too floppy. I meant how long had he been dead? Couple of days. You can tell because there's this... So how come Boffo saw him yesterday morning? They strolled onwards. Bit of a poser, that is, said Nobby. You're right. I expect the captain will be very interested. Maybe he was a zombie. I shouldn't think so. Never could stand zombies, Nobby mused. Really? It was always so hard to nick their boots. Sergeant Colon nodded at a passing beggar. You still doing the folk dancing on your nights off, Nobby? Yes, Fred. We're practising gathering sweet lilacs this week. There is a very complicated double crossover step. You're definitely a man of many parts, Nobby. If only I could cut the rings off, Fred. What I mean is, you present an intriguing dichotomy. Nobby took a kick at a small, scruffy dog. You been reading books again, Fred? Got to improve my mind, Nobby. It's these new recruits. Carrot's got his nose in a book half the time. Angwin knows words I has to look up. Even the short ass is brighter than me. They keep on extracting the urine. I'm definitely a bit under-endowed in the head department. You're brighter than detritus, said Nobby. That's what I tell myself. I say, Fred, whatever happens, you're brighter than detritus. But then I say, Fred, so's yeast. He turned away from the window. So, the damn watch. That Damn Vimes! Exactly the wrong man in the wrong place. Why didn't people learn from history? Treachery was in his very genes. How could a city run properly with someone like that poking around? That wasn't what a watch was for. Watchmen were supposed to do what they were told and see to it that other people did too. Someone like Vimes could upset things. Not because he was clever. A clever watchman was a contradiction in terms. But sheer randomness might cause trouble. The gone lay on the table. What shall I do about Vimes? Kill him. Angua woke up. It was almost noon. She was in her own bed at Mrs. Cake's, and someone was knocking at the door. Hmm? she said. 
I don't know. Shall I ask him to go away? said a voice from around the keyhole level. Angua thought quickly. The other residents had warned her about this. She waited for her cue. Oh, thanks, love. I was forgetting, said the voice. You had to pick your time with Mrs. Cake. It was difficult living in a house run by someone whose mind was only nominally attached to the present. Mrs. Cake was a psychic. You've got your precognition switched on again, Mrs. Cake, said Angua, swinging her legs out of bed and rummaging quickly through the pile of clothes on the chair. Where'd we got to? said Mrs. Cake, still on the other side of the door. You just said, I don't know, shall I ask him to go away, Mrs. Cake, said Angua. Clothes, that was always the trouble. At least a male werewolf only had to worry about a pair of shorts and pretend he'd been on a brisk run. Right, Mrs. Cake coughed. There's a young man downstairs asking for you, she said. Who is it? said Angua. There was a moment's silence. Yes, I think that's all sorted out said Mrs. Cake. Sorry, dearie, I get terrible headaches if people don't fill in the right bits. Are you human, dear? More usually, a landlady would ask, are you decent? But Mrs. Cake knew her lodgers. You can come in, Mrs. Cake. It wasn't much of a room. It was mainly brown. Brown oilcloth flooring, brown walls, a picture over the brown bed of a brown stag being attacked by brown dogs on a brown moorland against a sky which, contrary to established meteorological knowledge, was brown. There was a brown wardrobe. Possibly, if you fought your way through the mysterious old coats, brown, hanging in it, you'd break through into a magical fairyland full of talking animals and goblins. But it'd probably not be worth it. Mrs. Cake entered. She was a small fat woman, but made up for her lack of height by wearing a huge black hat. Not the pointy witch variety, but one covered with stuffed birds, wax fruit, and other assorted decorative items, all painted black. Angua quite liked her. The rooms were clean and brown, the rates were cheap, and Mrs. Cake had a very understanding approach to people who lived slightly unusual lives and had, for an example, an aversion to garlic. Her daughter was a werewolf, and she knew all about the need for ground-floor windows and doors with long handles that a paw could operate. "'He's got chain mail on,' said Mrs. Cake. She was holding a bucket of gravel in either hand. "'He's got soap in his ears, too.' "'Oh, er, uh, right. "'I can tell him to bugger off if you like,' said Mrs. Cake. "'That's what I always do if the wrong sort comes around.' "'Especially if they've got a stake. "'I can't be having with them sort of thing "'people messing up the hallways, "'waving torches and stuff.' "'I think I know who it is,' said Angua. "'I'll see to it.' "'She tucked in her shirt. "'Pull the door too if you go out,' "'Mrs Cake called after her as she went out into the hall. "'I'm just off to change the dirt in Mr Winkin's coffin "'on account of his back giving him trouble.' "'It looks like gravel to me, Mrs Cake. "'Orthopaedic, see?' Carrot was standing respectfully on the doorstep with his helmet under his arm and a very embarrassed expression on his face. Well, said Angua, not unkindly. Er, uh, good morning. I thought, you know, perhaps you not knowing very much about the city, really, I could, if you like, if you don't mind, not having to go on duty for a while, show you some of it. For a moment, Angua thought she'd contracted prescience from Mrs. Cake. Various futures flitted across her imagination. "'I haven't had breakfast,' she said. "'They make a very good breakfast in Gimblet's Dwarf Delicatessen in Cable Street.' "'It's lunchtime. It's breakfast time for the night watch,' 
I'm practically vegetarian. He does a soya rat, she gave in. I'll fetch my coat. <laughs> said a voice full of withering cynicism. She looked down. Gaspode was sitting behind Carrot, trying to glare while scratching himself furiously. Last night we chased a cat up a tree, said Gaspode. You and me, eh? We could make it. Fate has thrown us together, style of thing. Go away. Sorry, said Carrot. Not you, that dog. Carrot turned. Him? Is he bothering you now? He's a nice little chap. Woof, woof, biscuit. Carrot automatically patted his pocket. See, said Gaspode, this boy is Mr Simple, am I right? Do they let dogs in dwarf shops, said Angua. No, said Carrot. On a hook, said Gaspode. Really? Sounds good to me, said Angua. Let's go. Vegetarian, mumbled Gaspode, limping after them. Oh, my. Shut up. Sorry, said Carrot. I was just thinking aloud. Vimes's pillow was cold and hard. He felt it gingerly. It was cold and hard because it was not a pillow but a table. His cheek appeared to be stuck to it, and he was not interested in speculating what with. He hadn't even managed to take his armour off. But he did manage to unstick one eye. He'd been writing in his notebook, trying to make sense of it all, and then he'd gone to sleep. What time was it? No time to look back. He traced out... Stolen from Assassin's Guild, gone, dash, hammerhock killed, smell of fireworks, lump of lead, alchemical symbols, second body in river, a clown, where was his red nose, gone. He stared at the scrawled notes. I'm on the path, he thought. I don't have to know where it leads, I just have to follow. There's always a crime if you look hard enough and the assassins are in this somewhere. Follow every lead, check every detail, chip, chip away. I'm hungry. He staggered to his feet and looked at his face in the cracked mirror over the basin. Events of the previous day filtered through the clogged gauze of memory. Central to them all was the face of Lord Vetinari. Vimes grew angry just thinking about that. The cool way he'd told Vimes that he mustn't take an interest in the theft from... Vimes stared at his reflection. Something stung his ear and smashed the glass. Vimes stared at the hole in the plaster, surrounded by the remains of a mirror frame. Around him, the mirror glass tinkled to the floor. Vimes stood stock still for a long moment. Then his legs, reaching the conclusion that his brain was somewhere else, threw the rest of him to the floor. There was another tinkle, and a half-bottle of bear-huggers exploded on the desk. Vimes couldn't even remember buying it. He scrambled forward on hands and knees and pulled himself upright alongside the window. Images flashed through his mind, the dead dwarf, the hole in the wall. A thought seemed to start in the small of his back and spread upwards to his brain. These were lath and plaster walls, and old ones at that. You could push a finger through them with a bit of effort. As for a lump of metal, he hit the floor at the same time as a pock coincided with a hole punched through the wall on one side of the window. Plaster dust puffed into the air. His crossbow was leaning against the wall. He wasn't an expert, but hell's who was. You pointed it and you fired it. He pulled it towards him, rolled on his back, stuck his foot in the stirrup and hauled on the string until it clicked into place. Then he rolled back onto one knee and slotted a quarrel into the groove. A catapult, that's what it was. It had to be. Troll-sized, perhaps. Someone up on the roof of the opera house or somewhere high. 
Draw their fire, draw their fire. He picked up his helmet and balanced it on the end of another quarrel. The thing to do was crouch below the window, and... He thought for a moment. Then he shuffled across the floor to the corner, where there was a pole with a hook on the end. Once upon a time it had been used to open the upper windows, now long rusted shut. He balanced his helmet on the end, wedged himself into the corner, and with a certain amount of effort moved the pole so that the helmet just showed over the windowsill. Pock! Splinters flew up from a point on the floor where it would undoubtedly have severely inconvenienced anyone lying on the boards cautiously raising a decoy helmet on a stick. Vimes smiled. Someone was trying to kill him, and that made him feel more alive than he had done for days. And they were also slightly less intelligent than he was. This is a quality you should always pray for in your would-be murderer. He dropped the pole, picked up the crossbow, spun past the window, fired at an indistinct shape on the opera house roof opposite as if the bow could possibly carry across that range, leapt across the room and wrenched at the door. Something smashed into the door frame as the door swung to behind him. Then it was down the back stairs, out of the door, over the privy roof, into Knuckle Passage, up the back steps of Zorgo the Retrophrenologist, into Zorgo's operating room, and over to the window. It works like this. Phrenology, as everyone knows, is a way of reading someone's character, aptitude and abilities by examining the bumps and hollows on their head. Therefore, according to the kind of logical thinking that characterises the ankh-morpork mind, it should be possible to mould someone's character by giving them carefully graded bumps in all the right places. You can go into a shop and order an artistic temperament with a tendency to introspection and a side order of hysteria. What you actually get is hit on the head with a selection of different size mallets. But it creates employment and keeps the money in circulation, and that's the main thing. Zorgo and his current patient looked at him curiously. Pugnant's roof was empty. Vimes turned back and met a pair of puzzled gazes. The morning, Captain Vimes, said the retrophrenologist, a hammer still upraised in one massive hand. Vimes smiled manically. Just thought, he began, and then went on, I saw an interesting rare butterfly on the roof over there. Troll and patient stared politely past him. But there wasn't said Vimes. He walked back to the door. Sorry to have bothered you, he said, and left. Zorgo's patient watched him go with interest. Didn't he have a crossbow, he said. Bit odd going after interesting rare butterflies with a crossbow. Zorgo readjusted the fit of the grid on his patient's bald head. Dunno, he said. I suppose it stops them creating all those damn thunderstorms. He picked up the mallet again. Now, what were we going for today? Decisiveness, yes? Yes. Well, no. Er, maybe. Right. Zorgo took aim. This, he said with absolute truth, won't hurt a bit. It was more than just a delicatessen. It was a sort of dwarf community centre and meeting place. The babble of voices stopped when Angua entered, bending almost double, but started up again with slightly more volume and a few laughs when Carrot followed. He waved cheerfully at the other customers. Then he carefully removed two chairs. It was just possible to sit upright if you sat on the floor. Very nice, said Angua. Uh, ethnic. I come in here quite a lot, said Carrot. The food's good, and of course it pays to keep your ear to the ground. That'd um, certainly be easy here, said Angua, and laughed. Pardon? Well, I mean, the ground is... um. So much closer. She felt a pit opening wider with every word. The noise level had suddenly dropped again. Um, 
said Carrot, staring fixedly at her. How can I put this? People are talking in dwarfish, but they are listening in human. Sorry. Carrot smiled and then nodded at the cook behind the counter and cleared his throat noisily. I think I might have a throat sweet somewhere, Angua began. I was ordering breakfast, said Carrot. You know the menu off by heart? Oh, yes, but it's written on the wall as well. Angua turned and looked again at what she thought were merely random scratches. It's Ogham, said Carrot, an ancient and poetic runic script whose origins are lost in the mists of time, but it's thought to have been invented even before the gods. Gosh, what does it say? Carrot really cleared his throat this time. Sauce, eggs, beans and rat, 12p. Sauce, rat and fried slice, 10p. Cream cheese rat, 9p. Rat and beans, 8p. Rat and ketchup, 7p. Rat, 4p. Why does ketchup cost almost as much as the rat? said Angua. Have you tried rat without ketchup? said Carrot. Anyway, I ordered you dwarf bread. Have you ever eaten dwarf bread? No. Everyone should try it once, said Carrot. He appeared to consider this. Most people do, he added. Rat and cream cheese is only one of the famous Discworld dishes available in cosmopolitan Ankh-Morpork. According to the Guild of Merchants publication Welcome to Ankh-Morpork City of 1000 Surprises, also to be bought in its well-stuffed emporia are slumpy, jammy devils, thick on haddock, distressed pudding, cluty dumplings, and not to be forgotten the knuckle sandwich, made from finest pig knuckles. Not for something, is it said... For a true taste of Ankh-Morpork, try a knuckle sandwich. Clouty dumpling not to be confused with the Scottish clouty dumpling, which is a kind of suet pudding full of fruit. The Ankh-Morpork version sits on the tongue like finest meringue and on the stomach like a concrete bowling ball. Three and a half minutes after waking up, Captain Samuel Vimes, night watch, staggered up the last few steps to the roof of the city's opera house, gasped for breath and threw up Allegro ma non troppo. Then he leaned against the wall, waving his crossbow vaguely in front of him. There wasn't anyone else on the roof. There were just the leads stretching away, drinking up the morning sunlight. It was already almost too hot to move. When he felt a bit better, he poked around among the chimneys in the skylight. But there were a dozen ways down and a thousand places to hide. He could see right into his room from here. Come to that, he could see into the rooms of most of the city. Catapult. Hmm, no. Oh, well, at least there'd been witnesses. He walked to the edge of the roof and peered over. "'Hello there,' he said. He blinked. It was six stories down, and not a sight to look at on a recently emptied stomach. "'Uh, could you come up here, please?' he said. <sighs> I c- you are. Vimes stood back. There was a scrape of stone, and a gargoyle pulled itself laboriously over the parapet, moving like a cheap stop-motion animation. He didn't know much about gargoyles. Carrot had said something once about how marvellous it was, an urban troll species that had evolved a symbiotic relationship with gutters, and he had admired the way they funnelled runoff water into their ears and out through the fine sieves in their mouths. They were probably the strangest species on the disc. Wrong. Vimes didn't travel much except on foot and knew little of the lunker suicide thrush, for example, or the shadowing lemma, which exists in only two dimensions and eats mathematicians or the quantum weather butterfly but it is possible that the strangest and possibly saddest species on Discworld is the hermit elephant, 
This creature, lacking the thick hide of its near relatives, lives in huts, moving up and building extensions as its size increases. It's not unknown for a traveller on the plains of Hawondaland to wake up in the morning in the middle of a village that wasn't there the night before. You didn't get many birds nesting on buildings colonised by gargoyles, and bats tended to fly around them. What's your name, friend? Vime's lips moved as he mentally inserted all those sounds unobtainable to a creature whose mouth was stuck permanently open. Cornice, overlooking, Broadway. A gargoyle's personal identity was intimately bound up with its normal location, like a limpet. Well now, Cornice, he said, do you know who I am? Ooh, said the gargoyle sullenly. Vimes nodded. It sits up here in all weather, straining gnats through its ears, he thought. People like that don't have a crowded address book. Even whelks get out more. I'm Captain Vimes of the Watch. The gargoyle pricked up its huge ears. Vimes worked this one out too and blinked. You know Corporal Carrot? Vimes snorted. I grew up here, he thought, and when I walk down the street, everyone says, Who's that glum bugger? And Carrot's been here a few months and everyone knows him. And he knows everyone. Everyone likes him. I'd be annoyed about that if he wasn't so likeable. You live right up here, said Vimes, interested despite the more pressing problem on his mind. How come you know Arrot? Er, uh, Carrot? Was he? Ugh. Did someone else come here just now? Ugh. Did you see who it was? Oh. Holofern Street, Vimes translated. Whoever it was would be well away by now. Cornis volunteered. A what? Oh, fireworks. A fireworks stick. Like a like a rocket stick. Oh a kick oink it goes bang You point it and it goes bang Ick Vimes scratched his head. Sounded like a wizard's staff, but they didn't go bang. Well, thanks, he said. You've been, uh, eggy elk hall. He turned back down towards the stairs. Someone had tried to kill him, and the patrician had warned him against investigating the theft from the Assassin's Guild. Theft, he said. Up until then, Vimes hadn't been certain there had been a theft. And then, of course, there are laws of chance. They play a far greater role in police procedure than narrative causality would like to admit. 
For every murder solved by the careful discovery of a vital footprint or a cigarette end, a hundred failed to be resolved because the wind blew some leaves the wrong way or it didn't rain the night before. So many crimes are solved by a happy accident, by the random stopping of a car, by an overheard remark, by someone of the right nationality happening to be within five miles of the scene of the crime without an alibi. Even Vimes knew about the power of chance. His sandal clinked against something metallic. And this, said Corporal Carrot, is the famous commemorative arch celebrating the Battle of Crumhorn. We won it, I think. It's got over ninety statues of famous soldiers. It's something of a landmark. Should have put up a statue to the accountants, said a doggy voice behind Angua. First battle in the universe where the enemy were persuaded to sell the weapons. Where is it then? said Angua, still ignoring Gaspode. Ah, yes, that's the problem, said Carrot. Excuse me, Mr Scant. This is Mr Scant, official keeper of the monuments. According to ancient tradition, his pay is one dollar a year and a new vest every hogswatch day. There was an old man sitting on a stool at the road junction with his hat over his eyes. He pushed it up. Afternoon, Mr Carrot. You'll be wanting to see the triumphal arch, will you? Yes, please. Carrot turned back to Angua. Unfortunately, the actual practical design was turned over to bloody stupid Johnson. The old man eventually produced a small cardboard box from a pocket and reverentially took off the lid. Where is it? Just there, said Carrot, behind that little bit of cotton wool. Oh, I'm afraid that for Mr Johnson, accurate measurements were something that happened to other people. Mr Scant closed the lid. He also did the Quirm Memorial, the Hanging Gardens of Ark, and the Colossus of Moorpork, said Carrot. The Colossus of Moorpork, said Angua. Mr Scant held up a skinny finger. Ah, he said, don't go away. He started to pat his pockets. Got him here somewhere. Didn't the man ever design anything useful? Well, he did design an ornamental cruet set for Mad Lord Snapcase, said Carrot, as they strolled away. He got that right? Not exactly, but here's an interesting fact. Four families lived in a salt shaker, and we used the pepper pot for storing grain. Angua smiled. Interesting facts. Carrot was full of interesting facts about Ankh Morpork. Angua felt she was floating uneasily on a sea of them. Walking along a street with Carrot was like having three guided tours rolled into one. Now here, said Carrot, is the Beggar's Guild. They're the oldest of the guilds. Not many people know that. Is that so? People think it'd be the fools or the assassins. Ask anyone. They'll say the oldest guild in Ark Moorpork is certainly the Fool's Guild or the Assassin's Guild. But they aren't. They're quite recent. There's been a Beggar's Guild for centuries. Really? said Angua, weakly. In the last hour she'd learned more about Ankh Morpork than any reasonable person wanted to know. She vaguely suspected that Carrot was trying to court her, but instead of the usual flowers or chocolate, he seemed to be trying to gift-wrap a city. And despite all her better instincts, she was feeling jealous. Of a city. Ye gods, I've known him a couple of days. It was the way he wore the place. You expected him any moment to break into the kind of song that has suspicious rhymes and phrases like My kind of town and I want to be part of it in it. 
The kind of song where people dance in the street and give the singer apples and join in and a dozen lowly match girls suddenly show amazing choreographical ability and everyone acts like a cheery, lovable citizen instead of the murderous, evil-minded, self-centred individual they suspect themselves to be. But the point was that if Carrot had erupted into a song and dance, people would have joined in. Carrot could have jollied a circle of standing stones to form up behind him and do a rumba. There's some very interesting old statuary in the main courtyard, he said, including a very good one of Jimmy, the god of beggars. I'll show you. They won't mind. He rapped on the door. You don't have to, said Angua. It's no trouble. The door opened. Angua's nostrils flared. There was a smell. A beggar looked Carrot up and down. His mouth dropped open. It's cumbling Michael, isn't it? said Carrot in his cheery way. The door slammed. Well... That wasn't very friendly, said Carrot. Stinks, don't it, said a nasty little voice from somewhere behind Angua. While she was in no mood to acknowledge Gaspode, she found herself nodding. Although the beggars were an entire cocktail of odours, the second biggest one was fear, and the biggest of all was blood. The scent of it made her want to scream. There was a babble of voices behind the door, and it swung open again. This time there was a whole crowd of beggars there. They were all staring at Carrot. All right, your honour, said the one hailed as cumbling Michael. We give in. How did you know? How did we know what? Carrot began, but Angua nudged him. Someone's been killed here, she said. Who's she? said cumbling Michael. Lance Constable Angua is a man of the watch, said Carrot. <laughs> said Gaspode. I must say you people are getting better said Cumbling Michael. We only found the poor thing a few minutes ago. Angua could feel Carrot opening his mouth to say who. She nudged him again. You'd better take us to him, she said. He turned out to be... For one thing, he turned out to be a she in a rag-strewn room on the top floor. Angua knelt beside the body. It was very clearly a body now. It certainly wasn't a person. A person normally had more head on their shoulders. Why, she said, who'd do such a thing? Carrot turned to the beggars clustered around the doorway. Who was she? Lattice Nibs, said Cumbling Michael. She was just a lady's maid to Queen Molly. Angua glanced up at Carrot. Queen? They sometimes call the head beggar king or queen, said Carrot. He was breathing heavily. Angua pulled the maid's velvet cloak over the corpse. Just the maid, she muttered. There was a full-length mirror in the middle of the floor, or at least the frame of one. The glass was scattered like sequins around it. So was the glass from a window pane. Carrot kicked aside some shards. There was a groove in the floor and something metallic embedded in it. Cumbling Michael, I need a nail and a length of string, said Carrot very slowly and carefully. His eyes never left the speck of metal. It was almost as if he expected it to do something. I don't think, the beggar began... Carrot reached out without turning his head and picked him up by his grubby collar without apparent effort. A length of string, he repeated, and a nail. Yes, Corporal Carrot. And the rest of you go away, said Angua. They goggled at her. Do it, she shouted, clenching her fists, and stop staring at her. The beggars vanished. It'll take a while to get the string, said Carrot, brushing aside some glass. They'll have to beg it off someone, you see. He drew his knife and started digging at the floorboards with care. Eventually he excavated a metal slug 
Flattened slightly by its passage through the window, the mirror, the floorboards and certain parts of the late lettuce nibs that had never been designed to see daylight. He turned it over and over in his hand. Angua? Yes? How did you know there was someone dead in here? I just had a feeling. The beggars returned, so unnerved that half a dozen of them were trying to carry one piece of string. Carrot hammered the nail into the frame under the smashed pane to hold one end of the string. He stuck his knife in the groove and affixed the other end of string to it. Then he lay down and sighted up the string. Good grief! What is it? It must have come from the roof of the opera house. Yes, so? That's more than two hundred yards away. Yes. The thing went an inch into oak floor. Did you know the girl at all? said Angua, and felt embarrassed at asking. Not really. I thought you knew everyone. She was just someone I'd see around. The city's full of people who you just see around. Why do beggars need servants? You don't think my hair gets like this by itself, dear, do you? There was an apparition in the doorway. Its face was a mass of sores. There were warts, and they had warts, and they had hair on. It was possibly female, but it was hard to tell under the layers and layers of rags. The aforementioned hair looked as though it had been permed by a hurricane, with treacle on its fingers. Then it straightened up. Oh, Corporal Carrot, didn't know it was you. The voice was normal now, no trace of wine or wheedle. The figure turned and brought her stick down hard on something in the corridor. Naughty boy, dribbling Sydney, you could have told I it were Corporal Carrot. Er, the figure strode into the room. And who's your lady friend, Mr. Carrot? This is Lance Constable Angua. Angua, this is Queen Molly of the Beggars. For once, Angua noted, someone wasn't surprised to find a female in the watch. Queen Molly nodded at her as one working woman to another. The Beggars Guild was an equal opportunity non-employer. Good day to you. You can't spare I ten thousand dollars for a small mansion, could you? No. Just asking. Queen Molly prodded at the gown. What was it, Corporal? I think it's a new kind of weapon. We heard the glass smash and there she was, said Molly. Why would anyone want to kill her? Carrot looked at the velvet cloak. Whose room is this, he said. Mine. It's my dressing room. Then whoever did it wasn't after her. He was after you, Molly. Some in rags and some in tags and one in a velvet gown. It's in your charter, isn't it? Official dress of the chief beggar. She probably couldn't resist seeing what it looked like on her. Right gown, right room, wrong person. Molly put her hand to her mouth, risking instant poisoning. Assassination? Carrot shook his head. That doesn't sound right. They like to do it up close. It's a caring profession, he added bitterly. What should I do? Burying the poor thing would be a good start. Carrot turned the metal slug over in his fingers, then he sniffed it. Fireworks, he said. Yes, said Angua. And what are you going to do, said Queen Molly? You're a watchman, aren't you? What's happening? What are you going to do about it? Cuddy and Detritus were proceeding along Phaedra Road. It was lined with tanneries and brick kilns and timber yards and was not generally considered a beauty spot, which was why Cuddy suspected they'd been given it to patrol, to get to know the city. It got them out of the way. Sergeant Colon thought they made the place look untidy. There was no sound but the clink of his boots and the thump of Detritus's knuckles on the ground. Finally, Cuddy said, 
I just want you to know that I don't like being teamed up with you any more than you'd like being teamed up with me. Right. But if we're going to have to make the best of it, there'd better be some changes, okay? Like what? Like it's ridiculous you not being able to count. I know trolls can count. Why can't you? Can count. How many fingers am I holding up then? Detritus squinted. Two. Okay, now how many fingers am I holding up? Two and one more. So two and one more is? Detritus looked panicky. This was calculus territory. Two and one more is three. Two and one more is three. Now how many? Two and two. That's four. Four. Now how many? Cuddy tried eight fingers. Uh, a two four. Cuddy looked surprised. He'd expected many, or possibly lots. What's a two four? A two and a two and a two and a two. Cuddy put his head on one side. Hmm, he said. Okay, a two four is what we call an eight. Eight. You know, said Cuddy, subjecting the troll to a long, critical stare. You might not be as stupid as you look. This is not hard. Let's think about this. I mean, I'll think about this, and you can join in when you know the words. End of CD 4